good to see you all. I preached last week from the book of Philippians. Can you all hear me? Okay, let's try this again. So if you were here last week, you'll know that we looked at Philippians chapter 3 and said that one of the supreme resolutions that we can and should have for 2022 as a church of Jesus Christ and as individual Christians is to say with Paul, I want to know Christ. Those five words, I want to know Christ and to pursue relationship with Christ. And one of the things that I suggest that we do when we pursue relationship with Christ is we pay attention to what he has said. We listen to his word intently. We listen to it deeply because Christ is speaking to us through his word. And what I would like to do for the next while, probably leading right down into Easter, is to enter into a book study of Genesis. Only the first three chapters to begin with. We'll see what we'll do in Eastertide. Perhaps we'll continue on with the book of Genesis. Perhaps we'll do something different. But I want to go into Genesis because I believe deep down that we in the church need to get profoundly foundational with our faith to explore once again the foundations of our faith. And I can find no better way to do that than to enter into the book of Genesis. And I think that what you will find with me is that Genesis is going to provide us with foundations for flourishing. That this book is not merely a book of information. It's not simply trying to tell us what happened in the past just so that we know what the history was. But it's a book of wisdom that's trying to teach us how to live today. It's not only about the past, it is very much about the present, and it's very much about the future. Today, I want to focus on a very short and a very familiar verse of Scripture, the opening verse of the book of Genesis, and as it turns out, of course, the entire Scriptures before us. Genesis 1, verse 1. Beloved, it's familiar to you, but I invite you to hear these words once again, and then consider with me the implications of these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If this focus seems a little small to you this morning, if focusing on one verse seems a little narrow, I'd like to make it even narrower. Because I'm not so much going to focus on the implications of God, although that will certainly be a part of it, nor that he created the heavens and the earth, but rather I want to focus almost singularly on the first three words as we find them in the English translation. In the beginning. Which is actually only one word in the Hebrew. Barashit. I want to focus on the first word in the first book of the entire Bible. And I want to do so, beloved of God, because the implications of this one word, of this short phrase in the English, is quite, in fact, monumental. Though we may not actually reflect on it very often. And as some of you are thinking, boy, oh boy, if we go one word at a time, this could last us not only a couple of months, but a couple of years. And I'm not promising it won't. But I want to focus on this phrase because of the implications. Let me simply, as we move our way to this table, let me share with you three implications of the English phrase, in the beginning, one word in the Hebrew, barashit. Implication number one. We live in a storied 
universe. We live in a storied universe, and when I say storied, I do not mean like as in an apartment building. S-T-O-R-E-Y. Story one, story two, story three. That's not the story I'm talking about, although that is probably true of the universe too. But when I say storied, I mean as in a narrative, as in a story, S-T-O-R-Y. Because you see, beloved of God, when Scripture says, in the beginning, we immediately know that if there is a beginning, then there is an end. And if there is a beginning, and if there is an end, then there is also a middle. And if this beginning and middle and end are driven by an author, in the beginning, God, then we can know that we have history. That all that stands in the past and all that's going to come in the future is part of history. It's part of his story. His story is going somewhere. We're in the midst of a very large narrative. Because there is a beginning. (laughs) And there is a middle. And there will be an end. The absolutely genius philosopher Aristotle who came on the scene a couple hundred years before Jesus said that in order to have a story, this is a meaningful story, an actual story, not just a chronology of events that are disconnected, but in order to have a story, you need essentially three things. And I know you literary critics out here will quibble with this, but it is fundamentally true. You need a beginning, you need a middle, and you need an end. So for example, Once upon a time, there was a little girl named Red Riding Hood who wanted to take some chicken soup to her grandmother who was ill. There's a beginning. But in order to get to her grandmother's house, she had to travel through a forest, whereupon she was followed by a big bad wolf. They let the wolf into their house. There's a middle. And then, depending on which version of this story you read, either the wolf comes to a bad end, or Little Red Riding Hood and her grandmother come to a bad end, teaching you, in the end, the moral of the story. Be very careful who you let into your house. Interrogate those whom you are going to let on into the interior of your life. But it's a story, because it has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. It's going somewhere, it has a point, it has meaning, it has purpose. Ernest Hemingway was once sitting down with a bunch of his friends. Stories can be implied. You can see a story even where one is not told in explicit or long-form fashion. Ernest Hemingway is sitting down with his friends and they challenge this great novelist, this great writer, to write a story that could make people cry in six words or less. (laughs) And if he did it, they would each pay him $10. Hemingway took up the challenge. He won each of their $10 because he wrote a story in six words that made them cry. Here was the story. For sale, baby shoes, never used. A story is implied in six words. There was a couple who longed for a child. They bought some shoes that were eventually to go on this child. But tragically, for some reason or another, and we don't know, 
those shoes never ended up on the feet of that child. Barashit. There is a story immediately implied in the opening word of Scripture. In the beginning, because if there is a beginning, then there is an also an end. And if there is a beginning and end, then there is a middle. And if there is a capital A author, then all of history is going somewhere. It has meaning. It has purpose. It's going to have a climax and a consummation point. And now, I can imagine some of you saying, well, this is entirely and perfectly obvious. Thanks for sharing this with us, Pastor Gerber. Wonderful. But didn't we know that already? But brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to underline to you that we ought not and should not and cannot take it for granted that we live in a storied universe. Because not all people in our world today, not all people in our world in the past have believed that we live in a storied universe that has a meaningful beginning, that's going to drive through a middle, and that is pointing and targeting towards a meaningful and culminating end. Many religions in our world for a very long time have believed that the universe itself is eternal. It has always been here. At the end of the day, the foundation of reality is matter. It's material. So there was no absolute beginning. There was no God who started the beginning. There is no God who's driving it towards an intended end. And when you seem to witness meaning in the world, what you can see is actually that it's actually just circles. Because what started out as unarticulated matter is going to end up after the stars burn out as unarticulated matter. And so the whole story, if you want to call it that, but it's not a story really. It's just a fact. The fact of the universe is that it's one giant circle. It's moving in a giant circle. It started one way, and it's going to go around in a giant circle, and it's going to end the same way. And if you look at your own life, from your own vantage point, life can begin to look this way too, right? It can begin to appear that the world and universe that we live in is entirely meaningless. This is precisely the perspective of the author of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet. When he simply looks up from terra firma and evaluates his life, he says, life is meaningless. It's vapid. It's ephemeral. It's vanity of vanities. It's meaningless, meaningless. Why? Because he says, look, from my vantage point, when I'm just standing looking up into the sky and using my five senses, the sun rises, the sun sets, and then it returns to the place where it started, and it does this day after day. It's just a circle going around and around and around. Look at the human appetite. You get hungry, and then you eat, and then you get hungry again. And it goes around and around in a circle. What's the meaning to it? Look at human life. You are born, you live, and you die. It's just a circle. And then there's birth, there's life, and death. And then it starts over. Birth and life and death. It's just a circle. And his conclusion is that what we must do in a universe like that is simply to embrace our own personal stories as the only story that matters and the only story that there is. So from this perspective, he's adopting for pedagogical purposes, okay, to teach. He says the, reason, the meaning of life is this. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And who can blame him? If our lives is all that there is, then indeed, 
Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And I don't know how you interpret our secular age today, but essentially, whether we believe this or whether we're just living this, but this is the prevailing belief in our world today. And no wonder. Because we're going to live and we're going to die, and then there's no story beyond that. It's the end of the book when you enter into the grave. And so indeed, I say this with no contempt, I say this with no disdain, I say this with all sorts of understanding. If that is the true story, if it's just our personal story and there's no larger story in history, we're not in a story universe, then that makes good sense. I would actually commend it to you. Yes, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. I agree with the humanist manifesto. The chief end of existence is the happiness of man. Life is very short. It's the trooper song. Remember the trooper song? We're here for a good time, a long time, so have a good time because the sun... Oh, come on, no trooper fans here? Because the sun can't... Thank you. The sun can't shine every day. It makes perfectly good sense. But scripture says, Barashit, <laughs> in the beginning... If there is a beginning, then there's going to be an end. And if there's an author, then it's going to drive through the metal and go to the end. Second implication, if we do actually live in a storied universe that's going somewhere, then in order to discover the true meaning of our lives, we must locate our individual stories within the larger story. It will be for us a foundation for flourishing. Here's the image. If this life is all that we have, if after death, that's it. So you're born, you live, and then you die. If that's the story, then here's the way we should think about our lives. As an individual book with one cover here at our birth, one cover here at our death, and then whatever happens or we do in between. And try your best to be a good author of your life. Have your best life now. That's a fair way to look at it. But if... Our lives are to be situated within a much larger story. Then we need to change the way we view the book. Instead of seeing our lives as a book that stands all by itself, alongside perhaps other books that are all eventually just going to be extinguished, maybe we need to perceive ourselves as a character within a much, much larger book. An actor in the book. And what are you going to do if you agree that you are a character in a book? Well, since you find yourself in the middle, because much has gone on before in this book that's being written, and much will come after the book that's being written, you're going to do all that you can to figure out what the author has said about who you are, where you are, what's the problem with this world, what's the solution and where it's all going. You're going to want to, if you're going to learn to play your character's role, learn as much as you possibly can about the larger story. To flourish and truly live out the meaning of your character, you're going to have to know the larger story. Friends, what I want to say to you today is that the first foundation of flourishing that Scripture commends to us is to do what we can to lo locate our personal stories and to continue to try to locate our personal stories within the larger story of Scripture. And this is what, obviously, 
the Bible's going to help us do. Implication number three. See how quickly this is moving? Implication number three. That means that we are in a difficult position. It means we're in a difficult position. Because if we are to, if we're going to find the true meaning in our lives and start living it out, if to do this it requires that we locate it within the larger story, then that means we need to trust the larger story that we are told. But how do we know and come to trust that the story that the Bible tells in today's world How do we know that this story, among all the other stories that might be told about this world's beginnings and the purpose of your life and where it's all going, why should we trust this book? It is an entirely fair question. And people in our world ask it. You've had conversations with people. I've had conversations with people. There are many truths. All religions are the same. Why should you privilege the Christian faith and that book above and beyond other holy books in this world? We're in a predicament, and I think it's just important to underline that. We're in a pickle. It's difficult, right? So what are we to do? Well, here's one thing. I just want to remind you, and I mean, we're in a pickle, right, just to define it a little bit better, because we find ourselves in the middle. We can't go back and look and see what actually happened in the beginning. We can't go to the end and see that it turns out the way that Scripture is going to say it's turned out. We are middled, as it were, as my friend Ian Proven likes to put it. We find ourselves in the middle of a story that's already been going on. Or as some philosophers like to describe it, there's a thrownness about our life. Isn't that wonderful? I think it comes from the German. We find ourselves thrown in. We find ourselves cast in. And you kind of wake up and go, where on earth am I? What is this story? Well, here's something to consider just as we start. How can you come to trust this story? Well, notice this. It's exactly the same thing with your personal story, with your little story. And I can prove it. How many of you remember what it was like in the womb? What did it feel like in there? Do you remember the day of your birth? What was your mother wearing before she got to the labor and delivery room? How about your dad? What were the events surrounding the delivery day when you were born? Or for your baptism? How many of you remember if you were baptized as an infant the day of your baptism? How many of you remember the first year of your life? Second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year? Oh, maybe some memories are starting to kick in in the fifth year, right? You can go back. But for the most part, if you're going to discover the story of your beginnings, which, by the way, are profoundly impactful on the person you have become today, then you need to be told what happened. And then you need to trust what you've been told. Ed, I was told, you were born at Vancouver General Hospital. You were born a month early. You were premature. You had highly membrane disease and you almost died. The doctor gave you a very, very slim chance of living. But you pulled through. I believe that story. I wasn't there, can't remember it, don't have any sensations of it in me, but I believe it because my mom told me it. And I trust my mom because I have a relationship with her. This goes back to the message last week. The first and foundational reason we will believe the story of the beginnings is because we have a relationship with God, which means first and foremost that the Holy Spirit has 
come into our hearts and reignited them, re-energized them, so that we hear in our hearts, Abba, Father, and we know that God is our Father. And we know in our hearts, because the Holy Spirit testifies to us, Jesus Christ is Lord. And then we come to know Jesus a little better by reading the Synoptic Gospels and reading the Bible as a whole. And we say, well, Jesus believed in the beginnings as they're told in Scripture. And I find Jesus trustworthy, so why wouldn't I believe the story of the beginnings that are told by Jesus in Scripture? It starts in relationship. But then, just to be very practical and a little bit confessional here this morning, there's another reason why I personally have come to believe, just from a very earthly perspective. And that is, friends, because when I look at all the options and worldviews and stories that are out there, when I look at all the facts of my life, when I look at the deepest desires of my heart, when I look at the suffering of people around me, their hopes, dreams, and aspirations, here's what I, here's what I have come to. The Christian story simply makes sense of the biggest questions I have about this world. It answers them most comprehensively, it answers them most coherently, and it answers them in a way that comports with my daily experience and my heart's deepest desires. So for example, just to take atheism, right, or scientific naturalism as they might call it, which is to say that this world wasn't started by a mind or some supreme being or by a personal deity or anything like that, but matter has always been here in some way or another. We're not really sure how, and it always will be here, but it, just take that story and compare it to the Christian story. For me, and again, this is no contempt to others who believe this uh, differently, but Christianity just makes more sense. So for example, if you take the story of beginnings that were being told, uh, physicists now know that there was somehow or other an absolute beginning. There was nothing, and then there was something. There was a Big Bang about 14, about, to actually know with unbelievable precision, it totally blows my mind, but about 14.8 billion years ago, there was some kind of unbelievable, powerful explosion that began, uh, it went outwards, and so the universe has ex been expanding for 14.8 billion years, and the universe continues to expand, which is how they can measure the amount of time that has passed because it moves at a constant speed, and therefore we know that the universe is such and such an age. But what physicists will say is that, unbelievably, it started all at one time, a single pinprick of time. And they'll say there was nothing before that. Well, but then they will still say that there is no God. And I just don't find this reasonable because, as the ancient Greek philosophers said a very long time ago, ex nihilo nihilo fit. What does that mean? Any philosophers here? Ex nihilo nihilo fit, out of nothing, nothing comes. Something does not come out of nothing. A magician may say that he's pulling a rabbit out of a hat, but we all know he's a prestidigitator. That is, he's just really good with the sleight of hand. Something comes out of something. It's just, I find it hard to believe that something comes out of nothing. And so they're trying to redefine what that nothing that something came out of is, but I find it a bit intellectually challenging. To me, it is much more sensible to say that this vast, beautiful, gorgeous, complicated universe that we see before us came out of a mind that is so much more immeasurably intelligent than our own. That just seems to make sense to me. 
And when I think, again, about what it means to be human, and if I compare the Christian story to the story of scientific materialism or naturalism, the Christian story just makes better sense to me and actually is a far better foundation for society. Because at the end of the day, if the human being on the scientific naturalist side is simply something that has come about as a product of chance and fluke in a fluke evolutionary process, then at the end of the day, the fundamental meaning or reality about a human being is that they are almost a miraculous form of uh, slime that's risen up out of the ground. A really incredible organized piece of slime. But I don't see how we move from that view of a human being to the inherent dignity that provides a foundation for universal human rights, as we want to have it in Western society. To say that you have intrinsic dignity as a human being and therefore have the right to be treated in a particular way. Where's the foundation for that in scientific materialism? I don't see it. It doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't say that some people can't make sense of it. It just doesn't make sense to me. It makes far greater sense to say that we have intrinsic dignity as a human being because God created us in his image. He breathed within us the divine spark. And we experience that when we meet with other people. We can see that a human being has intrinsic, inalienable dignity. And so that to touch another human being in a violent way and to transgress them is to commit high treason against the king of kings. That's scripture's view. Now that gives you a foundation for a universal logic or law of human rights. It just, it makes better sense to me. I don't see how the other one sustains, and I think we in Western culture are sitting on a branch that we're cutting off right now when we cut off the foundation for this flourishing belief. Here's another one. What about the goal of existence? The goal of existence, as we said earlier from the author of Ecclesiastes, and many in our day today, understandably, is eat, live, for tomorrow we die. And that's the end of the story. And so try to extend your life as long as possible and avoid death at all possible costs. And if death is out there and it's coming to get you, then be afraid because that really spells the end for you. C.S. Lewis addressed this question in a newspaper article he wrote back in World War II when there was a terrible fear of the H-bomb falling down upon the world. And he wrote this newspaper article addressing this for the people of his day who were living in terrible fear. I found this a luminous and profound quote, and I want to share it with you. Lewis says, The desire here for many in our day is for mere survival. Now, I care far more how humanity lives than how long. Progress, for me, means increasing goodness and happiness of individual lives. For the species, as for each man, mere longevity seems to me a contemptible ideal. I I therefore go even further than C.P. Snow in removing the H-bomb from the center of the picture. Like him, I am not certain whether if it killed one-third of us, the one-third I belong to, this would be a bad thing for the remainder. Like him, I don't think it will kill us all. But suppose it did. As a Christian, I take it for granted that human history will someday end. And I am offering omniscience no advice as to the best date for that consummation. 
I am more concerned by what the bomb is doing already. One meets young people who make the threat of it a reason for poisoning every pleasure and evading every duty in the present. Didn't they know that bomb or no bomb, all men die, many in horrible ways? There's no good moping and skulking about it. On the Christian view, we have a hope so that we need not live in fear of death because we will go on and live forever. And to me, this seems to answer the deepest desires and yearnings of my heart. That when somebody dies, that does not spell the end. That now that George is gone, it doesn't mean we won't see George again. But by God, and I mean by God, we will see George again. That puts our present lives in perspective. And it gives us a profound foundation for flourishing. Fear ye not of death. For our Lord will come and say, rise, and you will. One final reason that I find the Christian story just makes more sense to me. And so, from a very earthly perspective, why I believe it. And now I want to get really crunchy and down to earth. You know why? I believe the Christian story, another reason, is because of its view of food. (laughs) When compared to the view of feud by, say, scientific naturalism. Because at the end of the day, for a scientific naturalist, the deepest meaning of food is that it fuels your machine, fuels your body, so that you can live another day. It preserves you, it gives you the energy that you need, enables you to metabolize, translate into energy, and go on living. The deepest meaning of food is to fuel your machine on scientific naturalism to prevent you from dying too soon, in about three days, right? But on the Christian view, the deepest meaning of food is that it is an emblem of God's enthusiasm for our lives. That when God gives us a morsel of food and provides for us, he says to us, I want you to live. And more than that, with the diversity of food and the diversity of tastes of food, the diversity of appearances of food, God says, not only do I want you to live, I want to delight you in the act of living. But then the Christian view of food goes even more because God says, not only do I want you to live, not only do I want to delight you in the act of your living, but I want to invite you around a table of friendship with other people and with me myself. I want to invite you around a table of friendship. We started out with Aristotle. I want to end with Aristotle. Aristotle said that there are three things that make up a story, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Aristotle said that there are three things that constitute true friendship. There's you, there's another person, and then there's the thing that brings you together. It might be tennis that is your third thing. It might be the love for books that is your third thing. It might be fine red wine that is your third thing. It might be the love of dogs or Toyota trucks that is your third thing. But the third thing that God draws us around with is food. And because of our common humanity and need for food, when we sit at table with other people in a face-to-face fashion, we are in a temporary fashion 
placed into a relationship of friendship with one another. Because there's you, there's the other, and then there's that thing that's drawing you together. Your common need for food in your common humanity. And God invites us to eat with him, friends, so that we might have friendship with God. And the food that he ultimately gives us at his table is eternal life. It is the body and blood of Christ. It is this table right here where God says, I don't only want you to live. I don't only want to delight you in your living. I don't only want to draw you into relationship, but I do want indeed to satisfy the deepest desires of your heart, which is for relationship with me in a life that is eternal. It is for this reason, friends, that we give thanks that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and broke it. I don't know if this is what I'm supposed to break. Well, here she goes. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup and he poured it out, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this also in remembrance of me. Every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And he is coming again. I invite you to stand. We will profess our faith together in the words of the Apostles' Creed as stated throughout the ages. This is our common faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, the Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us pray. I'll start with just a short prayer to invoke the Holy Spirit's presence, and then I invite you to join me with the Lord's Prayer. But Holy Spirit, we do pray that you would come, that you would work in our hearts, and that you would mingle our faith with the elements that we take so that they may become for us eternal life, so that they may ground us more deeply in the story that we find ourselves in, so that we may know Christ and his accomplishment on the cross. Lord, we thank you for the words that you have taught us to pray, and we lift them up to you now, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.